Hello, Texans and Texans at heart. I'm Susanna, and this is The Susanna Gibbs Show. I've been very fortunate to have two careers over the past 20-something-odd years. I've been an insurance agency owner, and I've also been an actress and producer, which is a really interesting mix of art and business. But what it really is, is I'm a sucker for a good story. And we hear amazing stories from our clients all the time. Artists, entrepreneurs, idealists, how and why they do what they do and how they keep doing it. Because sometimes the challenges and what feels like a defeat make the best story. Now we're going to end this podcast with an insurance tip of the week because the insurance agency sponsors this whole thing. So please stick around for that. And ultimately, please share. Share it with, share this podcast with a fellow Texan or a Texan at heart who is also a sucker for a good story. Please reach out to us at giveagencydallas.com. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, even if you're not our client, we'd love to hear your story too. Our next guest was in Texas. He is in Arizona now, but he had the wildly popular show, Jimmy Neutron which was on Nickelodeon. It had a couple mo- couple movies, series on its run. Our producer, Ashley, was super excited when she heard we were doing this. Apparently, she named her car after one of the characters on the show. And every time she'd go to pick up her friends in high school, they'd say, got a blast, an homage to the show. So again, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate having you. And now, on with the show. So on the podcast with me today, we have John Davis, creator of many things, but Jimmy Neutron was the thing that got our intern the most excited. She has a car named after um, one of the characters. So thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you actually are from Dallas, graduated from SMU. Yes, yes. Uh, I grew up in South Oak Cliff, went to Daniel Webster Elementary School, uh, moved to North Dallas, um, went to uh, Forest Meadows and then uh, Lake Collins High School, um, stayed in Dallas, went to SMU, <laughs> started a business in Dallas. Uh, so yes, I was Dallas-based for about 50 years. Wow. When did you graduate from Lake Highlands? Uh, in 80. 80. Yep. So I live in Town Creek, which is between... Oh, yeah. Forest Meadows and Lake Highlands. All my kids go there right now. Love it. So fun. I know exactly where that is. And when did you leave Dallas? When did you abandon us? Um, It was about, let's see how far, it was in 2014. Uh, I got an offer. uh, I'd actually, let me back up a little bit. Um, After uh, about a 20 year run with our production studio in Dallas, uh, and after the movie Ampoli came out, uh, we hit a gap between projects. And at that point, we said, hey, uh, we need to shut things down for a while and we kind of regroup. And by that point, uh, I've gone through the ringer on several projects and just, you know, these these animated films, they take so long to make. They take four or five years to make and it's absorbing and uh, it's so much fun, but you don't see friends or family for a while. And after, you know, many years of that, it's like, okay, I need to take a break. So uh, my wife and I took about a, about a five-year walkabout and traveled a lot and didn't work. And, you know, we, we had residuals coming in, so we, we, uh, we could afford to do that, which I was happy about. Uh, but, um, but then I kind of got the itch to jump back on the roller coaster. 
And so uh, around that time, I was offered a directing gig on an indie. And I said, okay, well, I haven't worked on an indie before. Uh, let's see what that's about. So I, I moved out to L.A. Uh, temporarily um, and thought, well, this looks like it's going to go for a while. So we went through the, the process of selling our house and moving out there. And that was about, you know, nine years ago. Um, and I went on a couple of projects while I was in L.A. Um, they were both indies. Uh, Asian finance, <clears throat> and uh, they were very educational. <laughs> um, at the end of the pro last project, uh, decided, well, you know what? We've lived 50 years in Dallas. We've lived, you know, eight years in L.A. Uh, I want to get out of the big city, get to a smaller town. Uh, my wife and I both really loved uh, desert, and uh, we checked out Tucson and loved it. And so, uh, so they call us halfbacks. You know, we, we moved away from Dallas and, and then we moved about halfway back. So, <laughs> mm, gotcha, gotcha. Why? So you said it was interesting. The Asian, I can't, I don't, I want to get to the, to the animation stuff of Jimmy Neutron, but since we're on California and the Indies, what did that mean? Interesting yeah, so, is such a layered word and it can, say, <laughs> it can mean so many things. Right. Well, you know, it was uh, it was interesting because I had never worked, uh, done business with uh, with China. Uh, the first project I was on, it was fully uh, China backed, and um, you know, everybody has different experiences. My experience was that hey, I always got paid; they paid me well. But it was, but you never knew from one moment to the next if the project was going to keep going. And after about eighteen months or so. Uh, and we were we had solved the story problems of the film. You know that's the big hurdle you get on you. You're starting off. You're trying to find the story. Uh, it's a big struggle. Then finally you find the story. Everything clicks. And you go ah, this is it. Great, we're over the hump. Now we're now we're really pulling forward. And then suddenly they pull the plug. You know I get a call. Uh, we're sorry, we are out of money. Mm. <laughs> it's like, okay, I guess we're done then. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so that was that was my first experience, and then I, I had another experience. I got on an, another uh, uh, indie film that was Asian backed. It was a combination of China and Japan, and um, similar but different issues. Um, a lot of it was just cultural too. Um, they they wanted to make a uh, a film that would travel outside of Japan, outside of Asia, uh, and so they wanted to hire a Western writer, Western director, um, and the and the. the the problem was is that they had to have something that played to the China audience, to the Japanese audience, and to the Western audience, and that's a really tough nut to crack. And so, like the first attempt, um, uh, we did our first animatic. Uh, first, uh, an animatic is when you, you, in animation, you basically take your storyboards and embellish them, uh, and you do a sketchy version of the entire film, and then you edit it to music you know, sound effects and everything. So you can actually sit back and watch the film uh, in a very sketchy form, but you understand how the film moves, where any problem areas are, if the story's making sense, if the characters are paying off. Um, and so we did that, and uh, on the first, uh, first screening, and the screening w went great. The European partners loved it, the Western partners loved it, uh, but then China had a problem saying, well, this is not gonna play well to Chinese audience, and so then, then we started chasing our tails, you know, like, okay, now we're trying to please this audience and now it doesn't work in the West. And, and after about four years of that, I just kind of threw my hands up and went, this is crazy. <laughs> we can't get off the starting gate. So with that many cooks in the kitchen, I mean, did you have, when you were 
we're going to just jump all over the place. It's going to be fun. So when you were doing Jimmy Neutron for Nickelodeon, how many people did you have to answer to then? Or was that kind of like, how much creative control did you have when you were doing it? Right. Um, You know, it's kind of like the way I describe it to people. It's like a door is wide open at the beginning of the project where you can kind of like toss anything in there and, and, and uh, you have a lot more free reign. But all the time that door is slowly closing as you're approaching the end of the project and money's running out and you're reaching your deadline. And then the changes are fewer and far between. You really got to stick to it because the studio wants to know what you're delivering. And so mm-hmm. at the beginning, you've got a lot more free reign than you do towards the end of the project. Um, in, in my particular case on, on Neutron, you know, there's two producers um, that I work with, uh, Julia Pister and Karen Rosenfeld. Um, and, um, and Were they yours or Nickelodeon? They were, uh, one was Nickelodeon, one was Paramount. Oh, um, okay. And then uh, Sherry Lansing was the head of Paramount at the time. And so that was kind of the, the pecking order, was, was the two producers. And then Sherry Lansing, of course, was the head of the studio. And, and that was kind of it. Um, so there wasn't a, like a huge group of people. Uh, there's really like three or four people. Uh, Albie Hack was also a big voice a producer on it, who was uh, the head of uh, 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 Nickelodeon at the time. Um, so yeah, there's only a handful of people, um, which is great. Uh, I've been on other projects where there was more than that, and it becomes mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's, you add more voices, it becomes more problematic. Uh, it gets hard for everybody to pull in the same direction, and and the thing, the worst, the the enemy of <laughs> of those early steps in finding the story is when other producers or social producers start showing stuff uh, to friends and family and getting their notes. And then it's just like it mushrooms. And it's like, you know, everyone's going to have an idea, but it's at a certain point you have to trust your creatives. And, and it's like, you know what? Everybody's going to have a different thought, but I trust you. <laughs> and and it, it, sooner or later, as you go down the process, you're going to have uh, screenings for uh, you know, test audiences. And those are the voices you really want to listen to. Because uh, they're giving you feedback, you know, specifically on whether the movie's working or not. Gotcha. What were some of your highlights before Jimmy Neutron? Um, <clears throat> well, uh, starting, uh, we started our company, uh, DNA Productions, in 87. Me and my partner, Keith Alcorn. And uh, we had been working at a, a company in Dallas, um, K&H Productions, uh, at the time. There's a couple of animation studios back in the uh, uh, you know 80s, early 90s. There was uh, now. Were you in uh, Were you in the studios at Las Colinas then? No, they weren't even around then, right? Uh, they were. They were. I think they went up in the late 70s. I, I believe oh. right in the 70s. Uh, so they were around, um, but they, it didn't really figure into to what we do so much because you know we're not going to be shooting on stages. We're we're animation. Uh, so even though we went and there was vendors there we used like Allied WBS and Film Labs and some producers we worked with office there, but we never office there. Um, we, we started out of my, my duplex on Belmont. Oh, <laughs> and, Belmont. Uh, yeah, for about the first year, worked out of the, uh, the duplex. And then, uh, and then the, uh, we subletted a space from my dad's company. He had a civil engineering company and they, they had to pull back because of recession and said, hey, you know, there's some space here, you know, you can you can have it for a song. And uh, and then that helped us kind of get established and have an actual office. And and uh, after about five years of kind of doing whatever we could do to make money, we did music and animation and motion graphics and 
uh, not sure exactly what the company was going to be. But our main goal is that uh, Keith and I were both creatives, we were both filmmakers, and our concept was, hey, let's uh, surround ourselves with the tools we need to do our own short films. Uh, and, and during the day, we're going to do projects for people to try to make money and feed ourselves. But in between projects, after hours, we're going to work on our own stuff. And uh, we created all kinds of little short films um, that appeared uh, during the day. Uh, they had these uh, animation celebration and Spike and Mike Sick and Twisted, all these different traveling um, animation festivals. And so we would enter those. And through the process of doing that, we, be, we were exposed to producers outside of Dallas, because we wanted to get into entertainment and not just be a commercial industrial house. And, um, and it, it, it started to happen. You know, we started to work on, on some TV shows. We did uh, some stuff for um, uh, a thing called The Spooners, uh, which was an early uh, uh, series for late night. Um, and we started getting some other TV stuff that was outside the area. And through those short films, and actually that's where Jimmy Neutron came from. It, uh, it was a short film that, uh, that, that I did uh, back in 95. And, um, and that kind of started the ball rolling on, on Neutron. And, and um, yeah, we had uh, entered that in a, a uh, Lightwave competition. Lightwave was the software we, we were using at the time. Mm. Um, you know, around early 90s, there was not a lot of 3D software capable of doing character animation. And it wasn't until I saw Lightwave uh, uh, that came with the video toaster, new tech video toaster, that I went, aha, there's a bone system. You can actually do skeletal animation. You can do character work. And so it really became a test to see if it was going to be viable. And I, I, I had this idea for Johnny Quasar, was his name at the time, it became Jimmy Neutron. And the idea dated back to the to the early '80s, actually. Um, uh, I had actually Is he based tried... on somebody that you know? Well, <laughs> funny you should mention that. Uh, it was sort of based on on me in a way because uh, the character itself was a way for me to live out some childhood fantasy ideas. Like, wouldn't it be cool to walk on the ceiling? Wouldn't it be cool to walk through walls or be invisible or? you know, have a robot dog or build a jetpack and fly to school, you know, that kind of stuff. And it was that sort of childhood wish fulfillment is what was, that was the trigger for creating the character. But, but of course, you know, I wanted to do those things when I was a kid, but I couldn't because I'm not a genius. So I had to make him a genius. And, uh, you know, and then, then it just sort of built from there. Um, but yeah, it, and the reason he, he was called Johnny Quasar initially is that, uh, I worked in a survey party. My dad had a civil engineering company, so every summer I'd work in a survey party, and they would make fun of me because I was into science fiction and science, and, and uh, the party chief kept calling me Johnny Quasar, space cadet. You know? I thought, Johnny Quasar, because my name's John. And I thought, that's a great name. I'm going to use that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So you but, have... But so. Sorry, go ahead. You can finish your thought. Oh, I was going to say, but eventually we had to change the name. The lawyers got involved and said, well... Johnny Quasar, it's a little close to Johnny Quest, and there's also a Captain Quasar video game. So I had 24 hours to come up with a new name, and my wife and I walked the dog you know, around the block a few times and talked about it, and finally hit upon uh, Jimmy Neutron. <laughs> mm, gotcha. And the lawyers get involved. They ruin everything. Um, you have some really great characters on, on Jimmy Neutron. Like, how do you guys come up with all of that? 
originally the uh, the characters uh, came from people I know. Um, for example, um, like I said, Johnny Quasar is based on a sort of little avatar for myself, you know. Uh, so uh, he gets to do all the things I want to do, and he's he's all he's science boy, and I I, I love that. So it's loosely based on things that I I liked. Um, and then Carl uh, is kind of based on a friend of mine I had in elementary school, uh, whose, whose name was Carl, and he was he was just he was sort of a uh, a, a big, happy-go-lucky guy, and it seemed like a great sort of uh, friend for Jimmy. Like he could be Jimmy's guinea pig because he's like, "Okay, Jimmy, I'll just go along with." Yeah, Have you want to clone me? Sure. <laughs> Does Carl know that he was the basis for Carl? No, because I've lost track of Carl uh, since elementary school. <laughs> How fun! Yeah. Carl he has no that. idea he's a character. No idea. Wow. And the and the, the character Sheen. Uh, originally started out to be a Japanese character, um, and because I wanted to have, a, I thought it'd be fun to have a Japanese so, sort of a Taku fanboy uh, character. And um, uh, we had a heart. It was based on uh, uh, there was a guy that, that worked for us, a Japanese guy named uh, Harushin, and we called him Sheen for short. And I, I thought that's a great name, so I, I it was inspired by him. <laughs> nice. And I, I told him that later in years. He's like, oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Who was your favorite character that you ever did? Uh, well, Jimmy is my favorite character. Jimmy, uh, yeah. Clearly, being an avatar for myself. But what was great is just the, the chemistry of the characters worked so well. Um, and it's kind of like Winnie the Pooh, where you've got, you know, Eeyore, very glum, and you've got, you know, Tigger, who's like this, you know, endless bouncing energy. So you want to have these complementary characters. And so uh, that's why I think... Uh, particularly the triumvirate of, of Jimmy, Carl, and Sheen work so well together. Now, and, did you guys, uh, yeah. you guys struck this really good balance between appealing to children while incorporating some humor and themes that adults could appreciate. Did you guys, were you sitting around in your writer's room on Belmont or wherever you were at that point going, all right, our kid's going to get this, our adult's going to get this? Yeah, and I think the, the trick is um, you, you consider your audience. It's a family audience. You know, some things are going to fly, some things aren't. You want to make sure there's things in there that the uh, adults are going to enjoy and, and the kids are going to enjoy. But it's okay to have some jokes that only the parents get or jokes that only the kids laugh at um, as long as you're not out of balance in that regard. So it's just about finding that sort of balance. Um, and I never really thought like it kind of happens organically. I mean, you're not setting up thinking, okay, I'm going to write to both audiences every time I write any dialogue. <laughs> I mean, you're not thinking that. You're just kind of writing what feels proper in the scene and feels like, okay, the character would say that. Um, and then later you go back and you go, okay, can we say that differently? Or, 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 oh, that's a setup for a joke here that may fly over the heads of kids, but the adults will like. And you kind of start addressing that later. But first, you're just really thinking about story and character. So you guys also have like a wide range of extraterrestrial beings and in, in the universe um loosely inspired by any real world happenings i mean you live in arizona you have to go <laughs> through rio doso on the way right I don't know, well I'm you know back back in the day when, when i created this um i created the uh, the yokians uh and i thought well the yokians the way they the reason they became egg-like is i thought well they're so highly evolved that their technology is so fantastic that they just never have to move. Everything happens for them. So 
So over time, they would just atrophy into like a puddle of goo. <laughs> and then they become <laughs> reliant on their little things to float them around. So they have to be contained in like an egg-shaped container and fly around. So they're like half robot, half... Yeah. So that's kind of where the idea came from. But what was funny is I, uh, how you kind of psychoanalyze yourself. You know, going back, it, I didn't think about it at the time, but later I kind of went, you know, I've always had this weird thing of combining space travel with eggs. <laughs> because... <laughs> Because my, my very first miniature spaceship I made in junior high for an early, early film I did was made from one of those legs containers. I don't know if you remember, the pantyhose called legs. Oh, yes, and, yes. And they would actually sell them in an egg-shaped container. And so I, I got one of those uh, containers, and I made it into a spaceship. <laughs> and, um, and then later, uh, I, uh, I did some other uh, egg-related <laughs> space-type craft. I go, I guess that's... Like somewhere in my brain, it keeps associating eggs with space travel. So I'm not going to look at it. I'm going to make eggs for my kids, and I'm going to be pondering why eggs in space now. So <laughs> thanks for that. You're um, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to call me John. What is it? Do you think maybe it's this? Um, <laughs> so walk me through the timeline of like you write the script. How long does it take you to write the script on average for each episode? Yeah. Right. So um, it depends on if you're writing, you know, feature script or series script. Um, you know, feature script it can take. Uh, I mean, it. Here's the thing. There's there's a misnomer about uh, writing scripts or writing in general for film. You never write the script and it's finished, and then mm -hmm. you move on and make it. That never happens. No. You write the script to where it's like good enough to be greenlit, and then you go forward and you're constantly writing all the way through the whole process. So if the film takes four years to make, you're writing for four years <laughs> because you'd never stop the process. Uh, I would say to get a good first draft, um, if you have working from a good outline, everybody's process is different. I like to work from an, an outline, uh, show it to the producers so they know where I'm going. Uh, and then once they bless it with their notes, then go to town. And once you actually start writing from an outline, you could, you could write in about three months and do a, a feature script. Uh, but then the rewrite process will go on for forever. Um, when you guys were filming the series, did you have the series all the way written out before each season started? No. No. Um, there would be, uh, you, we had several writers working on the series because a uh, series is very different than the feature. You know, the feature, you're telling one big story. With the series, you're you know, telling lots and lots of small stories. And the pipeline for the series is that there's multiple shows being worked at simultaneously, and they're all in various stages. So, um, so you have several, uh, you know, episodes being written while several other episodes are being produced, and so everything's just overlapping. And you need more writers because it's just so much material. Uh, so it's mm -hmm. a very different different animal on the series. Uh, me personally, uh, uh, what I did was was back in '95 when I did that original short for Jimmy Neutron. Um, uh, I, I had developed a show Bible along with Keith and our, our Paul. Uh, Claire Howe was our, one of our first employees, and, and Paul's still a good friend. And Paul did all the storyboards for the Bible. Uh, I wrote uh, most of the story uh, springboards, several of which became episodes years later in the, in the series. Um, but you basically, in a, in a series Bible, you have what the characters look like, you know, what they act like, what their role is in the series. Uh, and then, then example stories so they have a good idea of what the series is going to be. Um, so you go about that far, and then 
and then once uh, the project uh, is greenlit for a pilot, typically, uh, you choose your best story that, that feels like it's going to represent things the best, um, and then use that for your pilot story. Um, and in our case, um, we, we were p pitching a pilot for a series, and, and the whole pitch originally for, uh, for Neutron was for a series. Um, but once we did the pilot, Nickelodeon saw it, and they, they flipped out on the pilot. Uh, and they said, oh my gosh, this is incredible. How did you do this? This is, I, we definitely want a series, but we also want a feature film. And, <laughs> and it's like, wow, it's like it went instant franchise. Um, and um, so all these things, you know, they happen differently. I think in our case, um, it was kind of amazing us being in Dallas and suddenly being pursued by Hollywood. Uh, mm -hmm. which had, it had always been the other way around. We were trying to pursue Hollywood and they didn't know who we are. Um, and uh, it reminds me that it was, it was kind of funny. When we first started pitching in Hollywood and going out there, uh, we had this sort of reaction from some people of, uh, well, if you guys are so good, why aren't you out here? And it was kind of like, well, you know, screw you, you know. <laughs> and, um, uh, but then later, it flipped. Later, uh, we would hear things like, wow, this is great. Uh, I love seeing stuff that's not from around here because a lot of the stuff in Hollywood tends to be kind of creatively incestuous. You know, things borrowed and everything is kind of similar. And then they see a different perspective from someone that's outside of that system. It's fresh and they kind of go, oh. Uh, and then once I kind of saw that reaction, I went, oh, there's our calling card. It's, yeah. it's great to not be from around there. <laughs> yes, I've heard that. I remember when you guys... Um, I remember that when you got, I remember hearing about you guys, I remember hearing about your success, you know, as I never worked for you guys. I don't even know if I have some voice actor friends. I'm sure I had some voice actor friends come out and help, but I just remember going, wow, they're in Dallas. That's so cool. Right. Um, and I feel like it was during the time when Dallas was like, there were lots of things going on. Were you able to take advantage of the tax incentives that were pretty robust? Was that something that you guys were able to take advantage of? Um, not necessarily for us, because we, that, I think that's more of a live action. Uh, Is it? Okay. Thing. Yeah. I, I just felt know. like, and maybe it was because LA was like, we were little, we were Texas's darling for a little bit. You know, it was right. like, we had so many series going here. We had features, you guys, like, it was just like, it was just like, we were a buzz for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, it was funny because when we first started, uh, we got the green light for the for the uh, Jimmy Neutron feature, um, and that was. And in, just uh, remind me, it went feature series, series feature. How did it go? Because you had you had both. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we originally pitched as a series. We did a, a, an episode pilot for a series, um, and that's the thing they saw and flipped out on, and and they said we want a feature, and we want a series, and I said, well. If you're thinking about doing a feature and series both, then I would I would propose doing the feature film first because the nature of 3D computer animation is that uh, the assets take a long time to create. It's very laborious to like build all the 3D sets and vehicles and just everything has to be built. Um, and the nice thing about doing the feature first is you can build Retroville, all the characters, all these environments. You can build them at feature quality and then you reuse those assets on the series, and the series is going to look great. It's going to look mm. like the movie. And So uh, when you say build it, are you talking about electronically or physically? Electronically. Like okay. building it That's what I thought. I was just making sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, because it is it's, it's virtual building because <laughs> yeah. you're literally you know taking the the wireframes in 3D and, and sculpting and pushing and moving them around to construct everything you see. Every blade of grass has to be built on the inside the computer. Uh, but then once you have it, you can reuse it forever, shoot it from any angle. Um, mm, it's like a digital backlot. It's the digital equivalent of a film backlot. Interesting. Yeah. What were some, I know that, you know, you've got this huge fan base. People continue to be fans of the show. I'm sure you've had some um, interesting encounters with fans over the years. Um, (laughs) You got any you want to share? Yeah. Well, you know, the fans, uh, you know, who doesn't like fans? I mean, they they share a passion for what you love and and what you did. and, uh, and yeah, the fans are, are great. I love their passion. They're so passionate. They write their own stories. That, yeah. uh, sometimes they get a little too excited and start, you know, you know, saying, hey, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going to I'm going to call Nickelodeon. Will you work with me to get the series rebooted? And stuff? And it's like, yeah, it doesn't really work that way. But uh, and yeah. I think a lot of them are under the impression that, you know, since since I created the the, uh, the character in the, in the show that I, I own it. Uh, I do not own it because uh, <gasps> to get it made, you have to sell the rights. So wow. you know, that was, yeah. so you sold thing. yourself. You have to. Uh, yeah. Because, the, because if you don't, they're not going to make it. And, you know, and to buy the rights, you know, they, they paid nicely for them and, and it was great. And, and uh, we get residuals because that's how it works. Um, so, but they have to own it so that if they don't own it, then they can't control it. And if they can't control it, they leave themselves open to what's going to stop me or somebody else from going crazy and do Jimmy pornos. And, and it completely you know, ruins yeah. their franchise that they've sunk millions of dollars into. So, yeah. so to, to do that, to build that kind of franchise, they have to own it. And I understood that. And it's like, yeah, well, that's the price of admission that we got to sell it to make it. So, yeah. So, I did, um, once upon a time, I was in a, a web series back when web series were new and developing. And I remember talking to one of the writers and creators towards the end of it. And he was like, I knew before anybody else that it was coming to an end. Nobody knew yet, but I knew. And I was like, well, how did you know? And he was like, they stopped giving me notes. Oh, and he was right. like, and I knew that, that, yeah. we, that we were not going to be renewed. What was it like when they, when at the end of, because this was a this was a big chunk of your life that was yeah. ending. How did you well, find out what happened? Yeah, um, I was surprised, but not shocked because often when they have about sixty episodes, they can they can syndicate it. It becomes a syndication package. Um, so I think that after three years and several specials, uh, they had plenty of material to uh, syndicate it. And mm. um, uh, I think that they could have certainly produce more but um for whatever reason they had enough i don't know if it became ex- too expensive for them or, or whatever uh, i will say that in the entire time we, we worked on the series we never went over budget and we always delivered on time and usually when you do that i mean you get repeat business like crazy <laughs> um which is why i was kind of shocked that when they later decided to do uh the planet sheen spinoff that they didn't insist that we do it uh, uh, but by that time, you didn't get to do. Uh, I didn't know that you didn't get to do it. 
Yeah, so it was uh, uh, my partner Keith uh, produced and wrote and directed on it. Um, Oda Kirk uh, was the other partner. Uh, I did a, a little bit of consulting on it, and that's about it. Um, mm. I, I um, in the way uh, DNA worked is that we, like I said, we started out of my apartment on Belmont, uh, and we never had money. We never had any investors. Uh, we were hand to mouth for twenty years. Uh, I think we took out a couple of uh, bridge loans early on that we paid off within a year or two because Keith and I always promised ourselves we're never going to get upside down on this thing. We're not going to get into debt. Uh, we're going we're gonna, to uh, grow slow and sure. Uh, and the only big risk we took was actually making the Neutron feature because in order to m make that feature when they wanted it, we had to take a leap of faith and build a facility before we had a contract, <laughs> and uh, so that was our big that was our big leap of faith. And uh, but like my dad used to say, hey, if you're going to gamble, gamble on yourself. You know, because yeah. at least you can control part of it. And fortunately, that gamble paid off paid off for us. And uh, but yeah, since we were hand to mouth, uh, we always had good timing. Uh, when uh, we did the neutron feature, and then um, and then as the feature was wrapping. The series was ramping up, and so we moved our crew. We just shifted them from feature to, to TV series, and then there, you know, we had 150 people cranking away on that. Uh, and then as the series, we knew that it was going to uh, end after the third season. Well, at that time, the Ant Bully was greenlit, and then it, we perfectly moved the crew back onto feature <laughs> for the Ant Bully film. Uh, so we had this great timing, um, but then. Uh, when Ampli came out, we didn't have the next thing set up. And at this point, the company was so big, we had 250 employees that, um, yeah, we had to shut down because it's like when your monthly nut is over a million dollars a month and you don't have a project coming in, you're, gonna, you're not going to last long. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, we had, to, we had to shut down. And it was kind of time. I, I felt like uh, the shelf life uh, for the company, uh, I think everything has a shelf life. And, when Keith and I got into this, we really didn't get into it to build a huge animation company like this and, and manage 250 people. We really wanted to, to uh, create a company whereby we had the tools to use for our own stuff. And you know, uh, mm -hmm. suddenly we're, we're you know having to uh, uh, handle and manage all these folks, and we had to do that. We had to build that at the time to make Neutron because there was no place else to go. There yeah. was there was. The only big animation companies at that time, Pixar, PDI, I think Blue Sky was still doing their short films, and then there was us, and that was it. Uh, the rest of the animation that was around were smaller boutique companies that weren't working in features yet. Uh, so we were pretty early uh, to the game, and um, uh, I think that's why we had success, because as CGI became such a buzz, we were one of the few people uh, early adopters back then that, that knew how to do it and the studios didn't even understand it. Uh, I remember when when, uh, when they when all the people from Nickelodeon Paramount came to visit us after the pilot and they're all freaking out about it they said well we want a movie can you make it with the crew and people you have here which we had I think at the time you know 15 people it's like a no no, no. <laughs> no we have to hire a lot of people and build a facility and, and, uh, and do it at a much bigger scale um, and, and the amazing thing about Neutron, there's several amazing things. One is, is as I got more savvy in the business 
and become more cynical, you go, how did they ever allow us to do that? I mean, it's kind of unheard of that, you know, these big studios, Paramount, would take a chance on a couple of knuckleheads in Dallas working out their apartment initially, you know, and have this small group. But we had something they wanted. We had mm-hmm. we could do CGI, and and uh, we had the creative they wanted. They they wanted Dutron, and so that became our our only leverage because I had never even worked on a feature film before, uh, and suddenly I find myself writing, directing, producing one, and building a studio to create it. <laughs> so yeah. it was instant instant boot camp uh, uh, for all of us, and it was incredibly exciting. Uh, occasionally heartbreaking, uh, but ultimately just completely uh, overwhelming and, and wonderful. So, uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was interesting times. It's, it kind of reminds me a bit of what I see now going on with uh, a lot of the AI stuff. You know, people are kind of freaked out. Like some people love it, some people hate it. All oh, this new technology it, it allows you to do all this stuff. It's kind of like. You know, back in the 90s with digital, when digital hit the film industry, everybody's freaking out. And and yeah, I remember going... It's going to ruin film. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and I remember when I got out of college, going to LA and thinking, well, I may have to move there to get a job in like an optical house or an animation house. And I remember visiting some and there would just be a long hallway with all these little rooms and each room had an optical printer or an animation stand and this old guy in there. And so then, a couple of years later, digital rolls out into the industry, go back, all those guys are gone. No optical printers, no mm-hmm. animation stands, all the guys that ran them are gone, replaced by workstations. And it happened like that, you know? Yeah. So it's just like, well, it's, it's the inevitable nature of things to evolve. And uh, uh, it's like, you can't put the GD back in the bottle, you know? Change is the only constant. That's right. Yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. I wish we had more time because, and maybe we'll do a follow-up. I love follow-ups and here would be my follow-up. And I literally have to let you go because I have to go pick up a kid. That's a hard stop. Um, When you talk about the amount of time that scripts take to be written once upon a time, Versus how I think they're greenlit now, I think we could have a giganto conversation about that because I watch stuff and I'm like, man, that script probably only got four revisions before they took it and started shooting. You know, it's very different, I think, now than 10, 15 years ago. There's so much demand for content. It's just an insatiable demand for content. I'm sure the writers are just like, can I just get a revision, please, before I have to hand it over? Yeah, and the, and the bad thing is if, if they don't allow enough time for the process uh, and you're telling a writer, you know, you have to do this in two weeks or whatever, well, they're not going to do their best work. They're going to get all the low-hanging fruit. They're going to, you know, fall back on stereotypical things. And uh, uh, that's true of pretty much anybody because it takes time to takes find time. that story in a unique way, you know. Yeah, yeah, and let it grow and let it breathe. So mm-hmm. thank you again. I appreciate it. I'm And now, our insurance tip of the week. So, I was reading about this. Prince Charles and Biden met, and apparently it was a big to-do because they discussed political things, which supposedly he's not supposed to do now that he's the king. I'm kind of fascinated by it. I'm not going to lie. Anyway, 
But thinking about climate change and our guest lives in Arizona and it's supposed to be 117 this week and how we are redoing roofs in the DFW area on average every nine years. The industry is not set up to do it like that. Combine that with inflation and labor shortages coming out of COVID, it's kind of a hot mess and rates are crazy high. So that's why it's really important to make sure that you are getting all the discounts possible and look for ways to save money. Now, talk to your insurance agent about this. And if you don't have one that you like, I happen to know of an agency that would be so happy to talk to you. Please pass us along to anyone else that you may know who likes to listen to podcasts, or maybe they've never listened to a podcast before. And reach out to us at GiveAgencyDallas.com. We look forward to hearing from you, and we'll see you again next week. Thank you. Have a good one.